0: Welcome to Live Your Own Fit. Hi, I'm Pete Jacobs, Ironman Triathlon World Champion and Performance Coach. Coaching athletes and everyday people has meant dissecting my past achievements and the practices that I was consciously and subconsciously doing. There are so many mindset, goal setting, and fitness techniques that I'd implemented back then that are now at the forefront of all good health and performance coaching programs, and none more so than our Live Your Own Fit programs.
1: Not to mention the huge amount of new nutrition science that is debunking old myths and boosting modern performances. Hi, I'm Jamie L. Jacobs, co-founder of Live Your Own Fit. I am a health, well-being and performance coach and six times 70.3 distance age group champion. We've been practicing these natural food patterns for years now and have so much to share with you.
0: Did you know that with just a few lifestyle changes, you can go from fatigued to energised? Jamie and I are obsessed with understanding metabolic and mitochondrial health, as well as how our mindset connects everything for both everyday and athletic performance.
1: We help you change from a sugar burner to a flexibly fueled human, able to burn fat all day at rest or during exercise, as well as helping you build fitness without burnout or injury and learn mindset strategies to help you train, race or perform day to day.
0: Our aim is to help you see the big picture so you can learn about and change the things you need to and not worry about the little symptoms that will improve naturally as your health and energy increase. On this podcast, we talk to guests about everything relating to health, energy and performance. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Welcome, Professor Grant Schofield, to our Live Your Own Fit podcast. Um, just to introduce Grant to everyone here today, most of you will know of Grant, but Grant is um, an ex-professional triathlete um, lined up as a professional on the Kona start line several times. He's a world-leading professor specialising in metabolic health and performance for human potential. He is a professor at the Auckland Technology University, University technology, University of Technology, and author of several books, What the Fat, What the Fat Recipes, What the Fat for Sports Performance, and What the Fast. So we're very, very, very grateful to have you here with us today.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> great to be here, virtually. In,
0: oh, excellent. <laughs> um, and so if you didn't get uh, get it from that introduction, everybody, uh, we are going to be talking a lot about fat burning today. <laughs>
2: Awesome. Love to talk about fat burning. (laughs)
1: Um, So I'm going to open up with a question, Grant. Um, And uh, it's all about, you obviously work with a lot of athletes around sports and performance and um, optimal performance. Um, But why and how does eating a whole food, low-carb diet really help improve our everyday health and everyday sports performance?
2: Oh, that's a big big, question. That's a a big (laughs) question. Yeah.
1: I I feel like often the basics get missed, you know, they don't often get spoken about in these health podcasts. And a lot of people out there might be eating the typical sad diet, um, but they don't know why they should change.
2: Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of basic reasons around food quality, but I, I think even back a step from that to think about basic human physiology is uh, and one thing we don't think about here is that when we burn two different types of things that can be used as fuel, glucose, sugar or uh, fat, then the metabolic consequences of that are actually completely different they they'' completely different effects on the body uh, and they're different physiology and they and they're not that one's bad, but I guess my hypothesis is if you go down to the local Uh, food hall, and you took one of those people and brought them into my lab, and you put them on a treadmill, and you started them walking and eventually got them running, and then you measured their breath-by-breath gas analysis, which one thing about that is you can estimate what they're using for fuel, then one thing you would notice is that they are carb burners. They exclusively burn carbs to provide energy. And that's okay. Cubs do that. They're really good at helping provide energy, particularly at top-end performance. Uh, but if you went back in time in a time machine or or actually you just travel into the, say, the remote Pacific where people are still subsistence living off, off whole food, stuff that was recently alive running around or nature swimming somewhere or growing somewhere, then you would see a completely different metabolism. When they were sitting around and moving slowly, then they were exclusive fat burners and it's not until they start to exercise at a very high intensity that they become carb burners. And so that sort of person has what we think of as normal human physiology. Um, they burn fat when they need to, and they burn carbs when they need to. And unfortunately, because of oh, there's a whole history of what we've thought of, and when people have decided we should advise people to eat food for health. Um, the, the diet heart hypothesis and the lipid hypothesis, this idea of vilifying fat, particularly saturated fat uh, the, the either the, the unintended or, or intended consequences depending on how much you're feeling l- like it's a conspiracy theory of the food mm-hmm. industry at the time, and we've ended up with a diet that, that pushes our physiology into a state where it really can't access the fat that it, it should normally be Relying on as its predominant fuel source, and then if you think about that more, you're in a situation where uh, if you're burning just carbs, then that's an inflammatory situation, um, it's anabolic, so it's 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 growth. Um, and there's nothing wrong with growth, but growth without non-growth uh, is is chronic disease, and so that's what clogs your arteries, uh, and that's what Therefore, causes heart disease and stroke, um, and Alzheimer's and dementia, vascular dementia. Uh, when uncontrolled growth is is the basis of cancer, uh, and this inflamed brain is the basis of of anxiety and depression and and poor mental health, which uh, is the and, and rotten teeth. Um, so, you, so the most prevalent childhood disease, rotten teeth. The most prevalent adolescent disease, poor mental health and suicide, um, and the most prevalent. Adult diseases of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, cancer, all have the exact same cause: it's just prolonged growth and inflammation, without ever being able to turn it off. And so, a whole food diet that that gets the refined sugar and carbs out allows you to to be able to uh, turn off those growth signaling things. This is what fasting is: the extreme end of. So, fasting is not anabolic; it's catabolic; it's non-growth; it's tidying up cells; it's anti-inflammatory. It's immune boosting uh, and, and you can't be in that state the whole time either. So this normal human physiology is one of, that cycles naturally and we just don't do it as a human. So that's the long answer, Jamie, I guess, to to the point, why is a whole food diet good for us? Because it allows us to access our normal human physiology, just the way that we were supposed to be as, as, a, as a dual fuel system. Uh, actually, since I'm talking to some Queenslanders, and I think this is an important thing, because you only see it in Queensland now. Really, um, when you when you catch a Brisbane taxi, um, you would see these cars that are a dual fuel car, and I think the dual fuel Brisbane taxi is is so similar to the human body. So they they typically run on liquefied petroleum gas. Um, it's a cheap fuel. It burns very clean. The byproducts are oxygen and water, uh, and they'll get. Uh, nearly a million kilometres out of an engine running on this because it's such a clean burning fuel. The trouble with this gas as a fuel is when you go to actually have any top-end performance out of your car, it just doesn't go very well. Uh, and so, so really fast sprinting in cars actually you do with, better with petrol. And petrol, but petrol is a dirty burning fuel, um, creates pollution, but it also creates uh, uh, hydrocarbons and other things that really damage the engine. And so an engine running just on that, gets such a short lifespan. Uh, the, the, old, the old Australian Ford Falcon running on a dual fuel system is so much like the, the human system running on carbs and fat. Um, that's this what I always thought when I'm in one of those taxis. That the drivers don't seem to appreciate my analogy. But- yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> As they're eating their donuts. And- so,
2: yeah, <laughs> well, that's right. That's correct. Yeah, correct.
0: So some of, those, um, some of the different effects of burning sugar instead of burning fat, um, oxidative stress, burning sugar, lower amounts of oxygen, lower blood flow, Uh, Can you give us a bit more information about those detrimental effects of burning sugar? Well,
2: when you're burning sugar, there's a sort of trilogy, I think of, uh, of, of three things. So there's glycation. So glucose, sugar in your blood um, attaches itself to proteins and lipids in the body. And of course the whole body's made up of proteins and lipids, particularly cell walls. And, then these if they're not sorted turn into advanced glycated end products which are are a problem for the body so those in themselves create um, oxidative stress and inflammation Uh, the burning of sugar itself is creates reactive oxygen species as a byproduct Uh, and so you get this sort of trilogy of glycation inflammation oxidative stress uh, and they all cause one another when you burn uh, sugar for fuel. Now, in the short term, that's not actually a problem, and in fact, um, may be essential for life. Like we need, we need uh, signalling from these molecules. It has a use. It's part of the immune system function. Uh, it may be one of the reasons we crave sugary food when we have a stress response, because we. Uh, it's one of the reasons that when we're when we're stressed. Uh, the gut junctions, the tight junctions, open up and let through lipopolysaccharides, which are profoundly inflammatory. Um, perhaps you're preparing for for those type of situations where the immune system is going to need uh, activating. But prolonged activation of reactive oxygen species, inflammation, and glycation through sugar—those three things—is just a never-ending two-way circle. And uh, you know that's the basis of of poor health and actually a loss of a dozen years of quality of life for almost every human in the modern developed world including australia and new zealand so you know that's that's i think
0: and if if you when you're lipids which are fats for anyone not familiar with the term lipids so when you're saying the the glycation of the lipids um, that's likely to cause the plaque and calcium scores and all of that to increase. Well, there's,
2: there's another whole thing there. So, so, um, so lipids, well, there's things, there's low density lipoprotein. there's, there's cholesterol, but we, really lipoproteins, we think of these things, they carry um, fat and cholesterol out of the liver and they, they're like buses, they're just delivering it around the body. And, yeah. and, that's what they do. Like without that, you wouldn't be able to deliver energy of that sort or cholesterol for what its other essential uses are. So those those lipoproteins are traveling around delivering fats to be used for fuel and, and other things like that. Uh, what happens is that there's a little receptor molecule on there that gets uh, damaged. It's either oxidized or it's glycated. And it's almost like your key card to your uh, hotel door won't work anymore, it's not recognized. So these lipoproteins can't go back and get recycled where they're supposed to go. And um, so they're just sitting around in the bloodstream and you're accumulating these little uh, LDL particles and then they have to go somewhere in the end and they get small enough because they dump off all their cargo eventually. Um, and they just go into this the epithelial wall of the of the of the blood vessels and that's atherosclerosis that's plaques, that's heart disease, that's stroke, that's vascular dementia. And so, so yeah, it's, that's the process. People think, oh, I'm eating saturated fat or um, I need to eat more of this uh, you know, fiber and that sort of thing. It's nothing to do with the process. The process is glycation and, and oxidative stress.
0: I remember reading a while ago, if this is correct, um, that also having high blood sugar levels will actually um, damage the endothelial walls of the cell. The little fingers of the veins themselves actually kind of get... Stripped away at that point when blood sugar is high, so that's yep. sort of opening yourself up to more plaque buildup as well. Is that?
2: Yeah, yep. There's right? that, and then and then you've got another whole mechanism that's that's unknown to do with this as well. Because when the sugar in your blood's high and insulin is high, um, at the kidney you hold on to more sodium just because of that, uh, and therefore you hold on to more fluid. Therefore, your blood pressure is higher. Therefore, anything that's any little plaque that's sitting in the blood vessels you know the river is flowing faster um, with more pressure those are more likely to break off They're just just in like a river and so you know multiple levels you've got the same mechanism having different and, and negative effects
0: yeah so oh yeah i've got one more follow-up to so when you mentioned craving before and you mentioned low energy and, and energy is my favorite topic um so you mentioned one of the processes that may be causing people to crave sugars. Um, and another theory of mine, and I'd like to get your opinion, is that stress also causes that inflammation, as you said. Yeah. But then the inflammation shuts down the ability for the mitochondria to produce energy via oxygen and fat and you know, in an easy, easy way. So that lack of being able to produce energy also, then you get this feeling of low energy in the brain, which is just a, a feeling of low energy, but mm. it's actual inability to produce energy as well. Yeah. And then, and then it's, a cycle. it's a, yeah, cycle. a cycle. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the cycle, I agree with that. The cycle continues because then you go, well, I'm going to need a quick hit of energy here. So you, you, you um, invariably go for the ultra processed junk food, high in sugar, uh, and, and you keep that process going and then you move less. Um, So, the normal stress that would have got rid of some of that glucose and then the other stimulus that helps mitochondrial health disappears as well. So, it's just one on another on another. Uh, And everywhere you look, I think you're right, Pete, everywhere you look in the body, um, a system that is normally throughout the entire time humans have been on the planet until just recently been in perfect balance uh, is tipped almost 100% in this one direction. And when you I mean, the astonishing thing to me is when you, and I, I imagine to you as you too as well, is when you try and contradict that and say, hey, this might be going on, you know, usually just met with a sort of bank blank glaze at the best and uh, mostly like, no, you're wrong, mm. uh, especially mm. in medicine. Mm.
1: Definitely. And then just leading on from that, Grant, um, I recently had a client that was... Um, all systems go, um, 80 year old client Mm. wanting to get off sugar. So wanting to get off the cakes and the biscuits and everything. And she really wanted to see her energy levels, um, increase. But when she went to the cardiologist, the cardiologist really scared her away from, you know, eating the liver pate and the eggs, (laughs) um, the saturated fats. She had an absolute, um, freak out (laughs) at eating saturated fats, um, just because a cardiologist had said, no, your cholesterol um, is going to go too high. What yeah, it's you...
2: myopic my focus. Yeah. And look, my dad, uh, who unfortunately ended up developing metastatic prostate cancer, uh, which is well and truly sorted now. I mean, I, sort of my one frustration is that you get everyone in your family eating well, except your dad who doesn't believe a word you say, until he gets... Metastatic prostate cancer, and then decides to ask you what you do for a job again. They, uh, <laughs> I think
0: that's every
2: family, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting because I went along to the first couple of oncology appointments. She's like, "Oh, just eat just eat whatever you want," and and blah, blah. and I was like, "No, well, that's not going to be happening." And then and then so we got him through his chemo things on uh, on a keto diet with some intermittent fasting. He's doing really well, no side effects. But you go to the clinic where they're administering the chemotherapies and. And there's nurses, like trained nurses walking in there with biscuits and cakes and orange juice. And you're like, no, thanks. We won't be having that. Um, mm-hmm. And they're like, why not? And so, of course, I'm dumb enough to explain why. <laughs> a- and 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 she goes, well, uh, she goes, we don't believe in that. And I was like, well, I don't care what you believe. This isn't a church. <laughs> um, and then yeah. I was advised that I was no longer welcome at the chemotherapy clinic. But yeah, you know, I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying, Jamie. Can is you, that?
0: Can you give us your answer? What you gave to the nurse? Uh, well, I just. I,
2: I, well, this was cancer specific, and and specifically yeah. the adjunctive effects of um, ketogenic diets and fasting for chemotherapy, because there's randomized trials showing this to be uh, to
1: mm. marginalize
2: the cancer cells and to uh, protect the rest of the body from the the poison that you're administering it. Because remember, the chemotherapy is acting to destroy cells upon cell division. And so so cancer cells are already marginalized because they're rapidly uh, dividing. They're always anabolic. They can never get a catabolic signal. And human cells, if you eat junk food, just go into the same state because they're also constantly anabolic rapidly dividing but if you take them into a ketogenic state um, and augment that with some intermittent fasting then they become catabolic they're basically protected from the the toxin that you are administrating by IV because they they're not dividing and so this sort of where they're killed at mitosis doesn't happen to them uh, and so you can prevent you know you can minimize hair loss the sort of you know, remember in chemo the things, that chemo gets are the things that are dividing the most rapidly, like hair cells, uh, stomach cells, because those are replacing every few days, uh, skin cells, and those are those are really heavily affected by chemo, and those are protected because they they go catabolic. So I'm just trying to explain it like that, um, but she doesn't believe in that. So you know that's the end of that. Really, uh, it's quite a hard message to get out quickly in a yeah. healthcare setting when they have no idea who you are and you've got really no credibility yeah um, you' just you know uh, uh, some Bozo sitting there supporting his dad. you could just but, leave
0: a couple of your books beside your dad's bed and well,
2: like... <laughs> yeah, but it's just I mean, what you spoke to there Jamie. And what I was speaking to is is endemic in my frustration in the health system uh that that uh we're we're decades behind the science and and you know to a certain extent, it's always been the way we expect there to be a sort of medical half life you know half of what. Medicine knows is wrong, uh, and that takes 40 years to replace that half. Uh, but in my mind, that was in a world that was slow moving, where you had to have the library card for the med school library, and you know, there was only limited access to knowledge. That world is a completely different world now. You can have people on Twitter or, or other social media, and, and lay experts who have really educated themselves digging up the latest stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and making informed decisions and and adding to the scientific uh, debate and that's nothing but good
1: mm.
2: and and somehow medicine hasn't realised that and so you end up in a bizarre situation where in the realm of nutrition uh, if you if you're prepared to do a few months of reasonable digging around on your own you'll know ten times more than your doctor because they just never had any training. Uh, but the the power sort of sits the other way around, and that's a shame. Mm. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: I want to mention one of your books, What the Fast, because you've just mentioned a bit of fasting for chemo, but um, can you take us through the basic elements of autophagy and what it is and why why intermittent fasting is good? And then perhaps who shouldn't, approach uh, intermittent fasting if there is people you recommend not to?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, Pete. So I mean this autophagy is just the basic cellular mechanism of what I talked about earlier of, of catabolism, of of not dividing. But at the cellular level more interesting things happen there. And I, I think probably everyone who's an adult at some point in their high school career did the cell diagram. You know, you did the cell wall nucleus and nucleus is the DNA and then there's mitochondria that you talked about for you know producing ATP and any production yeah you know, most people do that they might not remember at all but uh there was always quite a large cellular organelle called the lysosome and I remember learning that about in year 10 or something and, and there was really no description of what that did uh, and as it turns out that's because it wasn't discovered at that well you know uh, what it must be 35 years ago that I did that um, but it was recently. That uh, this is the cellular organelle that, under either starvation, fasting conditions, or conditions of very low insulin and glucose, ketogenic eating, is activated to act within the cell to go through the cytoplasm inside the cell and tidy up any bits and pieces of are floating around, but uh, also uh, take uh, mitochondria and recycle old ones, and then and then uh, stimulate the the genesis of new, more phyto, uh, functional mitochondria uh, with better density and better function. And when it's done there, it can go to the cell wall and start to act extracellular in the cytoplasm as well. So it's really uh, stimulated by nutrient stress to go out there and, and uh, tidy things up. And that's autophagy. Uh, and it's just a basic mechanism of uh, of all mammalian actually probably of all animal structure and function that needs to be activated every now and again and that's the problem for modern humans so the question is can you uh, mimic that in the modern world and and do some fasting now to most people the idea of of just closing their mouth and not eating anything is uh quite mind-boggling and and uh, did they do this in Australia? I can't remember, but that's a New Zealand thing as well. There's 40-hour famine. Yes, they do yeah. that.
1: Yep, that's
2: yep. right. But you go, oh, I did the 40-hour famine. And it <laughs> turns out, well, actually, you're allowed to eat... Um, you're allowed barley to eat sugar. Barley sugars, which yep. are basically glucose, yeah. the whole time. So, <laughs> so for the entire time you're fasting, you're on a sugar <laughs> high. Uh, <laughs> so the real 40-hour famine is actually you just don't eat anything. and just have some water uh, over that time, and then you'll see your insulin and glucose drop and uh, when insulin and glucose are low enough, then, then this process of autophagy will begin. And then the question is, uh, as most religions have, can you do like a you know, two, three, four, five-day fast? Uh, and does that provide any benefit? Uh, and there seems to be some evidence for some, some benefit. Uh, although, Pete, I think you asked the question, who shouldn't do it? And I think there, there's, there is a question about losing Uh, valuable muscle mass over that extended fast and whether you actually might be better off just doing um, shorter fasts. So there's there's strangely quite a lot of trial literature on doing alternate day fasting, which seems to be frightfully hard for me. Like you don't eat every second day. doesn't ruin your muscle mass, but you do well out of it. Uh, Or or you switch to something that's much easier, like uh, a combination of keto eating and, uh, and, and intermittent fasting or just time-restricted feeding during the day. So I, the, the method that suited me best, I just wrote it up in there, what the fast was, uh, I would do these, these Mondays and Tuesdays, because I'm usually busy at work doing things and uh, running around, doing whatever I do. So I would just not eat breakfast, not eat lunch, and have one uh, ketogenic-type meal at dinner. And then I'd do the same thing on Tuesday. And I'd find myself in pretty deep nutritional ketosis stimulating that autophagy and purely and simply from my behavioral perspective, just because I'd actually ended up putting some method on Monday and Tuesday, I generally carried on with that ketogenic pattern, but with more frequent meals over the Wednesday, Thursday, and most of Friday. And then sometimes I'd just be doing harder sessions or I'd just lose control socially. You know, I might end up with a couple of beers and, you know, anything could happen on Saturday. And then I'd go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And I would have a good low carb Sunday and then be back into the cycle again. So that was a sort of natural cycle that I would find myself behaviourally falling into to stimulate nutritional ketosis and the benefits of that and autophagy, but also um, not being completely ridiculous, cut off in my own little nutritional bubble where I have to live with a 19 year old, an 18 year old, an 11 year old, and um, my wife um and a dog and sort of socialize and be with families and operate in a pathological food environment that I can't have a hundred percent of the control over. So that's what, what the fast was about was just sort of try and work with that cycling of catabolic and anabolic, but also in the context of um something that I could handle. So I just wrote it up and thought, well maybe other people might benefit from that as well.
0: And would you eat a lot more or your dinner size would end up being about the same as normal? Did you find? Oh it's
2: just about the same as normal, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, it's only cement you can eat, and I eat a reasonable volume anyway.
0: And um, when you mentioned there's other ways of of doing that, just a very low low carbohydrate um, eating. But what about um, like protein sparing fast, where you really just have protein um, and yeah. not too much of it? At, at, at and so you could you do similar um, to what you're suggesting? Yeah,
2: like, uh, yeah. I think that probably the problem with protein is that. Um, n- no matter what, it's, the way protein is dealt with is slightly insulinogenic, so it's probably going to dial a little bit of that autophagy up, up and down, but it's certainly another way of doing it. I mean, you look at people who do a carnivore-type diet, which is really high in protein, and they're, and they're ketogenic the whole time. So, yes. uh, yeah, that's, that's another way of, of attacking it.
1: And is there anyone, um, Grant, that you recommend shouldn't do fasting in terms of intermittent fasting? So uh, they wouldn't eat breakfast, they wouldn't eat until 10 or 11 in the morning?
2: uh, Yeah, I think think there's a few types. I mean, obviously, pregnancy is always sort of contraindicated for everything, but who really knows, since no research is ever done on those women, it's just so hard to do. But so Mm -hmm. I think everyone sort of is on the cautious side there, and I probably fall into that category still. Um, I still think there's an issue that's unresolved around around menstrual cycles, uh, and then also uh, changes in hormonal balance, through, hormonal balance through perimenopause and menopause, uh, and and some women just seem to be better off because it is stressful. Like mm. like there's a stress to fasting, and if you've got quite a lot going on, there's also a, a group of there's a subgroup in that those categories that that for whatever reason, train hard a lot. So they've got a sort of high cortisol load, Mm. a high stress, and I I think, well, first of all, I wouldn't advise them doing that, but if they are doing that, I don't think fasting, intermittent fasting works very well for that. It's just an extra, you're already stressed, you're already producing far too much cortisol, you're suffering negative consequences. Um, uh, Fasting will produce more cortisol, like that's one of the side effects. By itself, and if you've got it managed, that's not a negative thing. That's a good thing. But if it's already out of control, I think that's an issue. And I, that it's just hard to know what's going on with that, especially perimenopausal. Just what by that I mean, a woman who is now her estrogen and uh, uh, levels and progesterone levels are not as they have been. They're not cycling as they have been. The balance isn't what it has been. Um, who knows exactly what that balance is? But that appears to, uh, I think that warrants further investigation. I, my experience with those women is that you're probably better off with some more regular meal timing. Mm. You got anything else to add on that?
0: Um,
1: well, I yeah, was I, I wanted to ask something. But circadian,
0: I was going to add in the the circadian rhythm and cortisol kind of picture into that maybe eating framework and whether it's just partly they're not having good sleep, they're, they're too much Correct. blue light at night. So, so does circadian, circadian rhythm, you think, affect fasting impacts?
2: Yeah, well, it's a sort of a two-way thing here, which is, um, like, if you read the academic literature on trials with, with, with fasting, like whether it be alternate day fasting or ex, ex, uh, longer fast or uh, uh, eating windows, then it, it appears to be better for sleep quality and quantity, um, except for my experience personally with me, Um, is that's not the case, Uh, especially on an extended fast. My sleep gets lighter and lighter and lighter and of lower and lower quality. I don't seem that tired from it, but that's certainly happening. And I've always explained this to myself without any actual science behind this that that I'm getting really – if any food actually did come wandering past when I was asleep, I'd be sweet as to jump up and kill it. Uh, I don't know if there's anything in that, but that's, I find that anything beyond a day's fasting has quite a negative impact on my sleep. And most often, the reason I'll break an extended fast is it's just too annoying. Uh, But other people don't report that. And the the, the literature doesn't report that. Yeah.
0: My theory that I just thought of then um, perhaps having lower liver glycogen could mean that your hormones are actually kind of working a little bit harder to make up for that lower liver glycogen?
2: Yeah, but perhaps that's the case. And it's just really having to work harder to to mm. produce more gluconeogenesis and stuff just to maintain my mm. normal blood glucose and that mm. sort of thing. Um, and yeah, so then the cortisol was really rocketing harder and higher. Yeah. and Maybe yeah, affecting sleep.
0: That.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Cool. Just going back um, to women, because <laughs> I'm obviously, that's a passion of mine, women's health. Yeah. Um, uh, two-part question. So women that are sort of rushing around, you know, they're working hard, they're training hard, they're trying to have a social life as well. Um, uh, How would you suggest um, adapting a low carb lifestyle um, suits them? Is it different, you know, if they're doing slightly higher intensity training or how, how would you recommend that? Yeah.
2: yeah, It's an interesting one. And it's it's a really hard one for me to have credibility and insight. So as soon as you start talking about menstrual cycles and, ovulation and stuff you know first of all it becomes slightly awkward but actually it's just like me talking about in many ways it's like me talking about um you know how bats use radar to navigate the world it's something i've got virtually no insight into okay. I'll, I'll, so i'll preface that for a start okay. uh, awesome. so so that so that that said and that, that's important to me because all of my research really is predicated on the fact that i would have always have done it to the next level myself Mm. Um, and ho- hopefully convince some other people I know to have a go. So I have some, I have quite good insight on that. And I think that's, I, I do believe that's important. Mm. Um, in saying that, I think what's going to emerge, although um, my friend Dr. Mickey Willard uh, disagrees with me, I I think there's going to be something in in uh, in diet prescription that match, matches uh, phase of menstrual cycle. Uh, and I don't, I I, I think my progesterone is higher metabolic rate is higher, there is more of a craving for carbohydrate. Uh, my hypothesis is that that supplementing with more carbohydrate in that phase and doing less fasting when progesterone is higher um, would be beneficial. Now, I, I'm not aware of any data on that. Uh, and you know, of course, every time we go to do a study where it's like, who are we going to use as subjects? And we're like, oh, we should Definitely have men and women, and we go, oh, no, nah, menstrual was going to bugger it up, the women are out. <laughs> um, you know, which is the very reason we should be doing it on women. Mm. Um, so, so your typical exercise physiology, particularly subject, uh, is, is a male mm. for, for exactly the reason that you're talking about, and we don't do work on women. And so it's just been it's, it's such a – you know, to neglect half the population Mm-hmm. Uh, and your physiology of metabolism is bizarre. Mm.
1: And then, when you're talking about when progesterone is higher, uh, yeah. with your hypothesis, um, is that that you know the few days before um, period actually comes? Yes, correct,
2: yeah. correct. Well, it's actually the whole second half of that cycle, but it, it, it gets higher and higher, right? So, just as you're coming towards ovulation, it's at its highest. Uh, and, and there's also like you're going to have way more insight than say, so you should really do this bit of the talking frankly, Jamie, but um, yeah, there's also sort of behavioral things. It's going a woman who, especially with the exercise, you know, during that part of the cycle, it's like, yeah, I actually don't feel like doing this today. So I'm not going to do it. Uh, There's one diet study where they randomised women to, to a, a, a a strict control of what they're eating uh, the whole time. Or they actually said, uh, you know what, it's going to be two weeks and two weeks. And, uh and as you're coming up to ovulation and pressure is high just just uh, be a bit more forgiving of yourself and they did just as well mm. uh with with half the angst so there's 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 something
0: mm. awesome um i want to mention Precure, which is a business that you and your wife have um and part of that is helping people to get off the sugar diets into a lower carb diet um so prevention is cure is your is your tag, and that's yeah. where the name comes from. Yeah. Um, so pre-diabetic people, obviously a, a bit of a target for you. Yeah. Um, so you've worked a lot with people who have what you would say metabolic dysfunction, where mm. you know we're not producing energy in that balanced way of fat and sugars. And there's probably been a lot of insulin resistance for quite a while. So my question is: you've worked with a lot of these people. Um, have you seen sort of ongoing liver sensitivities to fructose and alcohol often in people that have come from that that background and those those health issues?
2: Oh, yeah, and that's totally plausible. It's just hard to know how to study that Besides, so I, was, I mm. guess looking, just looking at liver function tests and how they respond. and they do respond worse to alcohol and fructose. So I guess that probably answers the question.
0: Yeah, um, well, tell but, us uh, more uh, about fructose as well then and why it's... When it's okay to have it or when it, people should be avoiding fruit, which is the you know fructose is in fruit? Yeah.
2: Well, so fructose and actually um, this exact same explanation applies to ethanol, which is the you know, active thing when we think about alcohol um, because they basically go into the liver and act in the exact same pathway. So as uh, my colleague, Dr. Robert Lustig would say, it's uh, sugar is alcohol without the buzz. <laughs> so because and, and so you end up with alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are the same, exact same pathology, just caused by a slightly different molecule that has an identical effect on the body. So, uh, yeah, w- one thing about fructose, which which doesn't really exist in nature in any large quantity, um, but but is part of the sugar and fruits, but it's tied up in fibre and it's released slowly and uh, goes and ends up going in a different part of the uh, of the small intestine, really because. Uh, uh, because it goes further down, there's another whole thing there. Uh, but the thing, the thing with those is that they, at one point, you think that's good. Well, they don't raise insulin. They're not recognised as glucose in the blood, and that would be a good thing. Yeah, you know, we could feed these to diabetics, and that wouldn't, their blood sugar wouldn't go up. That'd be awesome. Um, unfortunately, they just go straight to the liver, um, are pretty much turned into uh, uh, fat and stored in the liver. And then there's another whole pathway where they're and that produces uric acid. And part of uric acid's problem is that that is the root cause of, of gout. These uric acid crystals sort of tend to go with gravity and accumulate in the hips, knees, fingers, and, and toes, and, and that's gout. Uh, and then you've got uh, another pathway with nitric oxide uh, at the cellular level sort of pushing to cause insulin resistance as well. So the trouble is that this fructose, which is half of table sugar, so it's sucrose. When you think of the white table sugar, whatever's in Coca-Cola, that sort of thing, half of, that, half of that sugar is glucose and half of sucrose is fructose. So it's now in this sort of massive supply in the body, right? So it's just turning up in biologically unplausible quantities. And because there's no fiber in it, it gets absorbed at the upper small intestine. And, and that promotes another whole uh, cascade of hormones uh, called the incretin effect so it pushes uh it pushes the hormones of insulin and glucagon to be dysregulated as well so so all of a sudden um you also when you're eating this fructose you're also telling your liver to produce more glucose and dump it into the blood hand over fist when it's not supposed to be doing that so you've got you got all these effects all over the place from fructose and alcohol uh and then then the the liver itself becomes insulin resistant and it doesn't operate in its normal way to get energy into the cells and becomes dysfunctional and you get sclerosis of the liver and dysfunction and that and then and then you become that's part of the contributing to type 2 diabetes and then there's a sort of whole circle that continues around that because um, now you're more insulin resistant you've got more craving you'll eat more of this stuff and Blah blah blah. I think I'm going on a bit now. Actually, so no, I'll no, stop. No, that's that's great. <laughs> just, just
1: for people, just to rehash. Um, how would you define insulin resistance, and how do you know if you have it, Grant? For people out there. Well, that's
2: a that's a um, that's a million dollar question. So, so it's not so much. Um, so, so there's two words here which are sounds. There's two phrases here which sound similar but are actually sort of different. We, we, I'm using the term insulin resistance, which, when I really mean. Um, they're prone to becoming hyperinsulinemic when they eat carbohydrates. Um, so, so they're prone to producing massive amounts of insulin to achieve the same job as a, in a, in a healthy person. A small amount of insulin would would do. Uh, and so, this, this term hyperinsulinemia is what we really mean. So, the way you'd measure that is what you'd have to do is you'd have to feed someone uh, a, a carbohydrate meal or a standard oral glucose load and measure their, not just their glucose response, but their blood insulin response. And, and so in nutrition, we're calling that a postprandial response. So that's just your response in your blood to eating that stuff. And uh, obviously that's hard to do. Like you just don't go into the doctor and they do that, but it can be ordered actually. Uh, and, and Australian doctors, more so than New Zealand doctors, can actually, actually take that form and get you to do that. So that's, that's the most accurate way of telling whether you're hypersecreting insulin. Uh, when you're not supposed to be Uh, most people don't end up doing that and so the standard blood test